Welcome to Science Fiction Double Feature. This month, we're going underground to the city of Recoleta with author Kerry Patel. And, a little closer to home, we're finding out what it takes to build underground with Crossrail project manager Linda Miller. It's a double, double feature this month, as I talk to Carrie Patel about her novels The Buried Life and its sequel, Cities and Thrones. For the uninitiated, the novels take place in a city called Recoleta, in what was once the United States. But it's not an ordinary city, as most of it, houses, shopping districts and transport, are all underground. But there's a mystery afoot, which pulls in the hard-nosed detective Liesl Malone, her rookie partner, Inspector Rafe Sandar, and the unsuspecting laundress, Jane Lynn. But a mystery turns into much, much more, which we attempt not to spoil in the interview, but may have not quite managed. I first asked Carrie to explain how the idea for an underground city came about. The geographical place, as well as sort of the the place in time, um, is something that, as you know, gets revealed over the course of The Buried Life. While trying to avoid spoilers, I I suppose, I was very interested in what it would look like for a society to be, you know, so mortally afraid of its own history. You know, I, I feel like one thing we hear again and again is, you know, oh, we need to learn our history so we don't repeat our mistakes. And, you know, we need to learn from our history. And I thought, what if, you know, what if something happened and the lesson people took away from that was, this is something we need to avoid altogether, this way lies danger, knowing this will only make us worse off. And the idea for the city of Recoleta actually came from a study abroad trip to Buenos Aires, Argentina several years ago. And as you may know, there's a district in that city called Recoleta, and there's a very famous cemetery there with all of these really lovely mausoleums. And I was just, you know, enjoying a stroll through there like you do. And thought, you know, wow, this is this is a really fascinating place. It's got this sort of somber beauty to it, you know, and, and all these buildings, like they're just so majestic and they, they almost look like little houses. And I thought, what would it look like if people did actually live in a place like this? And I thought, well, I mean, I guess they'd really have to live underground because these, you know, aren't that big. And then I thought, well, that would be interesting. So, yeah, it was, you know, kind of the idea of fearing history and, you know, sort of this this flavor and then this, you know, very practical idea of living underground and what would that be like and how would that shape society and how would a society be shaped by living underground and why would they have moved there? And so kind of revealing all the, the hows and whys and whens, uh, like I said, is something that happens over the course of all three books, really. The other question I ask, because I'm not quite sure and uh, maybe you don't want to give it away. What about what's the time period that we're looking at? Roughly, it's um minor spoiler, I guess. It's uh it's a few hundred years in the future from now, and I, you know, I I didn't, I don't know, I I never get extremely specific about exactly when that is, um, just because I thought like, well, if I if I put a number down, then that means you know I'm gonna have to dig into that number and be you know either extremely consistent, and then someone's gonna say, oh well, you know, what about this, this, or that, you know. This would make more sense if it were 300 years. This would make more sense with 500 years. So I thought, eh, it's a few hundred years. It's, you know, far enough that the modern world would seem like ancient history, but not so distant that things would be unrecognizable. So the one thing I quite enjoyed about the first book, well, both books, actually. So you go from kind of a mystery to 
the consequences of unfolding events without giving much away. That put a lot of the characters in very uncomfortable, morally compromising positions, almost. I imagine this is intentional as part of the plot, but it's something you don't see very often. You don't see the kind of aftermath of all these things happening and characters having to work their way through it. Well, you know, and when I got to the end of The Buried Life, where the sequence of events that you're describing gets kicked off, it just, it didn't feel right to make it tidy. I realized that, oh, this is, you know, maybe the time when kind of sort of the right thing comes in to fix all those problems. And I thought like, but but would this really be a solution to all those problems? Or would this just complicate them further? And I feel like maybe that's how it ended up becoming, you know, a series rather than a standalone. But I thought, well, you know, if you if you sort of bring this new order in, the question isn't just, is it a better order? The question is also, how do people react to it? You know, and how do you expect people who have spent, you know, their whole lives one way, thinking one set of things to say, oh, yeah, this is this is completely opposed to what we've always said and done and thought. That's fine. I mean, of course, people don't don't say or do that. And so I think introducing that complication and that sense of messiness and letting the main characters have to navigate it uh, was very exciting for me. And I'm I'm glad you thought that they were uh, morally compromised as well. I, I really feel for Malone, who is by far my favorite character. Uh, but like, it is a messy reality for her to, to that she loves her city, but she's also in this kind of position. It makes for, I, I think, a, a very relatable kind of set of circumstances in the way that this is how messy history is. Well, right. And, you know, is she is she going to do more good by forming these compromi- morally compromising alliances and working with people who are probably going to be in power, whether she, you know, whether she likes it or not? Can she do more good by trying to work with them and trying to influence them? Um, or is she going to do more good by, you know, rejecting them outright? And if she does that, then what are her options? So uh, aside from Malone, who is uh, I, I clearly love, but you have lots of female characters in this book who are also very kind of pivotal to the story, which, again, you don't see very often. You usually see one or two. Is this an, uh, an intention on your part to make sure that, you know, there's lots of women and interesting characters? And I guess not just women either, like lots of um, there's just a variety of different types of characters. I wanted to have a variety for sure. You know, I, I don't know that I I don't think I really sat down thinking I mean, and I I started the first book years ago now. I don't think at the time I was consciously thinking, I need to write some good female characters. I I think I was honestly just thinking, I want to write some interesting characters. And the way I imagined Jane and Malone uh, was just, well, they're both women. I guess that's just how I'm thinking of them, you know, along with all the other things I assumed about them. You know, and I mean, and, you know, as a woman who enjoys reading and writing and, you know, consuming stories and all kinds of media, it is certainly important to me to see um, to see people represented well and across the spectrum and, you know, not just in, you know, I feel like sometimes a question gets asked, like, how do you write strong female characters or good female characters? And I think the where you start is just write good characters, you know, and give them interesting motives and complications and flaws and strengths and start there. And then everything else about them, whether it's, you know, their gender, their family life, you know, their occupation, you know, all these other things go along with that, but don't need to determine what kinds of flaws and motives and strengths and personalities they have. And getting a little bit into cities and thrones, we see a lot more of 
other bits of the world. So we go to the countryside, we go to some of the other city-states nearby. Did you always want to go and explore more of this post-catastrophe world? I think once I knew it was going to be a series, yes, I did. Um, and I, you know, I think that the I guess the structure of the what will be now three books lent itself pretty well to that and, and to, you know, slowly opening up both about, you know, the, again, this specific location in the world, but also about the history of this setting. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot going on. And I think it's always a danger, you know, when you're writing speculative fiction, at least I think so, to, you know, to try to dump all of your lore on the reader at once. And so I think, you know, having having the buried life, setting that in the city of Recoleta and making that story very much about that city and a few characters in it worked and was focused enough. Um, but I, I think for a sequel, you know, it, it definitely had to expand. And, you know, I, I think readers had to see something new. And I think there are also questions that had to be answered of, well, okay, this, you know, this big thing has happened for Recoleta, but what does that mean everywhere else? You know, there are mentions of, of other cities and, you know, other alliances. So what happens in these other cities when this big thing happens? And I think sometimes you just, you know, whether it's with your characters or with your setting or with your story, you have to follow those threads and see, okay, well, you know, what are the implications of, you know, the changes and conflicts I'm, you know, writing for these characters and, you know, for these groups of people. And, you know, at, at some point, you know, you can't, you can't answer all of it at once, certainly. But I think at some point you do have to say like, okay, now it's, it is time that we explore this question and it is time that we reveal, you know, this part of the picture. And so I think expanding to, you know, to some of the other cities and the countryside, as you mentioned, in Cities and Thrones made sense. And then certainly things do expand even a bit more in The Song of the Dead, which is coming out in May. There was a line that I just recently read, which was, you know, what happens when you isolate these communities for 100 years or 200 years or however long it is? Because the two cities are very, very different. And this is usually a thing that I've only kind of come across in more like like cyberpunk. Did that influence your decision in this? You know, I love cyberpunk. Um, I don't think I was consciously thinking of it when I when I made these decisions. I think I was just more thinking that, you know, part of what fascinated me about Recoleta was developing a society and an aesthetic that isn't really current and that has maybe shades of things that are familiar to us. But I really liked this idea of sort of putting society in an incubator, you know, and saying, all right, we've got, you know, this handful of elements and we're just going to, you know, we're going to put it in the slow cooker turn the heat up and leave it for several hours and then, you know, come back to it at the end of the day and see what's developed. Coincidentally, I love uh, cooking with slow cookers because, you know, what you come to at the end of the day, you know, it's much more than the sum of its parts. And it's just this very rich blend of everything you put into it. And I thought, well, and that was what I enjoyed developing about Recoletta. And I thought, well, if Recoletta developed this way as sort of this, um, you know, almost this bunker that kind of develops on its own over hundreds of years and then only kind of slowly opens back up to the world. That's what's happening in the other cities too. So they can't look just like it. They have to have something else going on. Um, and so that, that was really what I had in mind when I developed uh, Medina as well as the other cities. You know, it's a, it's about a, a year old uh, cities and thrones, but some of the topics in there are really quite contemporary given recent politics. So you kind of have refugees, uh, you have, you know, the overthrow you know, violent overthrow in the case of Recoleta, but also, you know, the change in government in the United States and lots of protests and things like that. Did you think it would be this kind of uh, contemporary? Are you surprised by that? 
Oh, I mean, I'm I'm very surprised by things that have happened in the last six months. Um, I would not have seen any of this coming. And I guess this goes back to what we were talking about, about just, you know, avoiding the easy, simple answers. You know, I like to include that kind of moral complexity in the problems that my characters face and in the way things develop, you know, in, in their societies. I do think that when you're, when you're exploring those dimensions, you know, and when the overthrow happens, haha, it's not, you know, happily ever after. I, I think when you're, when you're looking for those dimensions and, and for that complexity, I, I think it is certainly easier for things to feel more current because real life is complex and messy um, and there aren't easy answers and easy solutions. And so that was something that I certainly wanted to reflect broadly, but yeah, I, I never, I never would have guessed that we would, you know, be where we are right now. I just, you know, expect Sato to tweet something anyway. <laughs> I kind of liked him at first, and then as this book has gone along, I've, um, I'm, you know, very wary of him as a character because I think he set up in the in the first book the white nails aren't you know the nicest lot, uh, and Sato comes along and you know he's going to change things. But now I'm just like, I don't think he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he certainly means well, I think, but uh, I don't think that meaning well is really enough, and. You know, I think his problem, which, you know, I think is something that a lot of people face is, you know, he has a, a very specific vision for the world and he sees why it's a wonderful one. And he just can't understand why nobody else sees that. And so, you know, by golly, he's going to make people see that one way or the other. And I think that's where the problem comes in for him. Yes. Uh, and you you just want to say you need to fix the holes and you need to get the lights back on and all this sort of stuff. But that's like a secondary consideration, um, which I think, you know, revolutionary versus kind of practicality is very, very much demonstrated in him. It reminds me of um, something that my, my husband tells me that George R. Martin says about, you know, how I think one thing that was and I'm probably, you know, mangling this narrative now, but an inspiration for him for writing, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire was, you know, what would Aragorn's tax policy have been? He, he wins the war and that's great, but is he a good ruler? You know, like, does, does he know how to lead and does he know how to, how to make these decisions and, you know, guide a country toward them? And I, I think that's the same kind of complexity that interests me is, you know, yes, this guy has some good ideas. And, you know, yes, he, you know, overthrows a, a very corrupt and destructive regime. Um, but does he know what to do with all this power? So you mentioned the third book uh, already. What, what can we expect? Are there new exciting cities that we're going to meet? Very much, yes. <laughs> um, there are actually a, a couple cities that are, yeah, new, new to the characters and new to readers. Again, without... Without getting too specific and giving much away, uh, you will find out where Roman comes from and why he left and uh, what that conflict is and how Sato has both inflamed it and how it is uh, maybe spilling over into Recoletta and the neighboring cities as well. So uh, as, as from the buried life to cities and thrones, uh, from cities and thrones to Song of the Dead, the conflict is bigger, the world is bigger, and, you know, the questions everyone starts asking in the first book have to be answered in a much bigger way. And Malone is still, I think, <laughs> part of this and has to sort her way through more and more <laughs> ambiguous situations. Yes, it will not get easier for her. I'm fascinated by your actual day job. <laughs> Could you explain what it is? Because I find it fascinating. 
Sure. So I'm a narrative designer in the video game industry. Uh, I work for Obsidian Entertainment, which is a game development studio that's best known for a lot of story-driven RPGs, games like Fallout New Vegas, South Park, The Stick of Truth, Knights of the Old Republic 2, Pillars of Eternity, which I worked on, and upcoming Pillars of Eternity 2 Deadfire, which I am currently working on. And so what I do as a narrative designer and writer is uh, help develop story and characters and uh, write, write the dialogue and a lot of the lore that you encounter in these games. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a very unique challenge. Um, you know, obviously it has a lot in common with, you know, writing novels and, it, you know, you, you're telling stories and developing characters. But the delivery method is, is very different um, in a game and particularly in something like an RPG you don't have as much control over how your audience is progressing through your content, you know? And one of the things that's both very fun and also very challenging is, you know, you'll write a dialogue tree, which is a tree, you know? It's, it's got a few different entry points based on maybe what's happening, what the state of the world is, what's happened to this character, and then a certain number of branches that the player can explore with this character, and, you know, and you don't necessarily know if the player is going to come to this moment right off the bat, if they're going to circle back around and reach them much later. You have to include these moments, or you really want to include these moments that react to the decisions the player is making and react to the way the story in the world is changing around them. And you have to design, you know, quest stories and character stories that remain relevant and that, you know, reflect on the overall, the overall experience that the player is having in this game, while keeping in mind that some people are, you know, really there because they want to sink their teeth into this story. And some people are really there because they want to kill some monsters. And, you know, your, your NPCs that you're so lovingly writing are mostly there to give them quests. And so you have to, you know, find a balance obviously, and provide opportunities for players to have these very rich interactions with these characters without going off on these, you know, very wordy tangents. Has writing novels helped complement that? Um, I think in, in the sense that, you know, I like writing science fiction and fantasy and, you know, the games I've worked on so far are fantasy. Um, so, I mean, there's certainly the genre crossover. I think the challenge of, of developing characters and developing voice for those characters and uh, finding ways to introduce them and of, you know, developing a story that's interesting and internally consistent and relevant to, you know, all the small things that are happening within it. I think that's, you know, those are certainly universal concerns of, you know, writing, whether you're talking about games or novels or film or anything else. Um, so in that sense, there's certainly a lot of crossover. Um, I do, I do find it, nice though that I that I get to work on these two different things and you know one thing one thing about writing novels obviously is it's very solitary you know writing by yourself you know doing all this outlining coming up with your story like it's usually a solitary endeavor unless you have you know a writing group in which case you know you have some you have some interaction but you're still doing most of the work on your own um, whereas with games, it's highly collaborative. Um, you know, you're working with other, other narrative designers and writers, as well as designers in other disciplines to come up with content that's going to be, uh, satisfying and aesthetically cohesive and that, that everything's going to slot in well together. And I think it's very nice to have, you know, on the one hand, some work that's very collaborative and that, you know, lets me work with other people and gives me the challenge of kind of solving multiple problems at once. But then on the other hand, with novels, working on something that is 
you know, that I have full ownership over and where I can just focus on the story, where I can gauge my progress a little more easily. I, th I think it's actually quite nice to have those two different areas to work in. My last question is, uh, which I kind of like to ask is, what are your favorite books? What would you recommend people read, either fiction or nonfiction or, uh, in your case, video games? Gosh, um, read a lot of things I really love. Um, I'm a big Neil Stevenson fan. We were talking about cyberpunk earlier. I'd say Reemd is probably a good one to get started with if uh, for readers who find maybe some of the, the heavier cyberpunk or specfic elements a little overwhelming. Um, he's just he's got a great blend of you know humor and relevancy, and it's, it's they're just all a treat to read. Um, I've loved Max Gladstone's books. I think uh, his, this is his, um, oh gosh, I the first one is Three Parts Dead. There's Two Serpents Rise, Full Fathom Five. I don't recall the name of the series. I think it's The Craft Sequence. That's what the series is. Um, but they're, they're wonderful books that also blend mystery and some really wonderful, unique world building. Um, this one is, you know, this series is much more heavily focused around magic kind of looking at magic as the practice of law, which being married to a lawyer is fascinating to me. And I just, I love the discipline with which, with which he treats this, but he writes wonderful characters and fascinating cities and the plots are all a treat. And then I would also really recommend, now I'm not usually a Western, I don't normally read Westerns, but Tex Thompson has a series called The Children of the Drought. Um, the last book, Dreams of the Eaton just came out and I'm on the probably the last quarter of that one right now. That's also a wonderful series that I just really love for the characters. Um, she writes these really wonderful ensembles. She's just, she's got a real sense of, uh, a real blend of humor and empathy with her characters. Everyone's sort of opposed, but once you get into the chapters from, you know, that take place from their perspectives, you see why they are the way they are. And she's not really making excuses for any of them, but at the same time, there's just, such a refreshing compassion with which she treats her characters, even the ones who are a little bit nasty. There's no one who's really like a bad guy. They're just all people who see the world very different ways and are, you know, caught in the middle of this clash of cultures. And, you know, they're funny and they're poignant and they're just a lot of fun to read. So the first thing that came to mind when thinking of a buried city was what is happening right below us in London, Crossrail. How do we build tunnels and stations across the entire city and beyond? Luckily, through my uh, underground connections, I was able to get an interview with Crossrail project manager Linda Miller. Linda has a staggeringly impressive resume, starting with flying helicopters in the US Army. She has degrees in engineering from both West Point and Berkeley. Since 2010, though, she's been working on Crossrail, having worked on the Victorian Connaught Tunnel under the Royal Docks, and now working at Farringdon Station. Crossrail, for those non-London listeners, is an absolutely enormous railway project, often referred to as Europe's largest construction project. It's building tunnels with enormous tunnel boring machines to join up southeast England to London with frequent high-speed trains. Nonetheless, most of the time, the work has been invisible, with most of the action taking place right beneath our feet. So what is building underground like, and how different is it from building above ground? I, I would say three things. Yeah? Water. 
Water, water, water. So first of all, you have the static load of water. You'll know that water pressures uh, relate to the depth of the water. So as you go down in a water-laden environment, you have heavier and heavier pressures, bigger bracing. It's needed that you don't have above ground. And then you have the dynamic nature of water, and that is once water starts to move and pull soil with it, I, I don't have to tell you about the whole finger in the dam thing and how it can bring the whole thing down. The, the movement of water recently uh, over a spillway in California, you possibly saw the news about that. They were worried that the dynamic movement of that water could bring a huge amount of that uh, structure down uh, that, that you would never worry about in a static condition. Item number two on that question is that changing soil strata. So uh, what you'll know is around in the London area, down in the deepest steps, you have chalk, you have a London clay layer, you have something called sanit sands, uh, you have what sand lenses, uh, and you have above that made ground. And so the made ground, that's a thousand years of industry, isn't it, and, and buildings on buildings. So again, what you don't have above ground is this changing nature of the medium that you're working in. And then it's made even more complex when we had, as we have it at Fangden, not one, but three great big faults. And I say faults as in ground slip. So 10,000 years ago to 20,000 years ago, three enormous ground slips, if I can say, or faults uh, appeared. Uh, they're named. One is the St. John's Fault. The other is the Smithfield Fault. And the other is the Farringdon. But what that meant to me and my team is that uh, an abrupt change in the strata that you're passing through uh, of three to three to five meters. So if you picture that you're traveling along in London clay, all of a sudden at a very abrupt line, uh, vertical line, this, the, the whole earth shifted and you're now up in the planet sands or into the made ground there. And then the last is unanticipated obstacles. Um, and, and some of those are natural. You, you run into giant underground boulders and, and the lot, uh, and others are human-made. So human-made is everything from old original foundations of buildings now long past. Uh, I was on a tunnel job in Boston, and what you may you may know, you may not know. And back in the 1600s, Boston was a very, very small little island. And by the mid-1800s, a decision had been made to expand Boston. Only they didn't know about, as we do today, the need for special soil types and compaction when you're trying to expand land. So they just went out and leveled all the suburbs around Boston nearby and just dumped everything. Oh, it, it was shocking, really. You know, the whole the kitchen sink, whether it was human-made old piers, old uh, sands, hills, dales, old vegetation, everything, that you, and, and poorly compacted. And so it was treacherous tunneling in Boston because it was not only human-made, but poorly uh, human-made back in the day and very likely to have a sudden and unexpected event in soil like that. So those are my three things, water, soil strata and, and unanticipated obstructions. <laughs> I didn't know that about Boston, but that's that's really interesting. The thing that everyone will know in London is that it's quite difficult to make it cool in the tube lines. Why is it very difficult to make it cooler? 
So you'll know that underground that there are geothermal forces and in fact a whole different conversation uh, you, you could jot down and do a really interesting blog about it is getting, uh, you can either put in ground source heat pumps or ground source heat energy uh, is its own really interesting field. That's where you run pipes down under the ground and just by the nature of the the flow of the water underground, it picks up ground heat. And so when it comes back up and goes into your heat exchanger, you start with water that is a bit warmer than it would be in, in other circumstances, so using using the ground as it were. So there you go. We've got the ground that, that is uh, full of this great potential to heat uh, domestic hot water or other, other water sources, but it also contributes to making it warm underground. And so having pathways for air to flow and remove that heat, right, which is building up down there, and then even further than that, going further and having cooling in underground spaces is, uh, is, is a massive and continuously developing field. And, and I would say that Crossrail's efforts to try and have a cooler system than any of the Central Line or the Jubilee or any have, have gone far and away further than, than anything I've ever seen in terms of using modern technology and modern temperature control systems. Also, do you ride the Jubilee line? I used to, but not so much anymore. So do you know the platform screen, the doors, the sliding glass doors that open the yeah. yeah. We have a similar system, but ours are sealed all the way up to the ceiling, unlike the Jubilee line where you've got a big space that's above you. And people say, oh, you know, well, really, why? Why do you do that? The specific reason for that is temperature control. And that gives us much better, much tighter control over the environment inside the train. I mean, the door is still open and closed, so you still have some transfer that's going on there. Uh, but the air cooling in the station and the air cooling in the trains, uh, the whole reason for the platform screen doors being tight to the platform all the way up to tight to the ceiling is is around cooling and airflow. But to, also to your question about uh, what are some of the unique features of, of working and building underground, and that's logistics, and I would say, so that's my two, one is ventilation before I even read the question, but the other was logistics, and so you have the tunnels that you're building and the stations that you're building, but you also need whole other pathways for bringing down and through materials. If you picture a building site, your work faces are everywhere. You can bring material, I mean, assuming you've got the roads or whatever, you know, you can bring material to your building. Let's let's say it's not blocked by other buildings or in a in a tight city environment. You can bring, you can come at it from any direction. You can uh, build scaffolding up, and you can be building on the top while you're having things delivered at multiple levels using, you know, high level forklifts or cranes in different configurations. In a tunnel job, you have very specific uh, access tunnels down in. They're expensive to build. They're very carefully understood what has to pass through, in what order. If you pass something through and it's not ready to go to its onward location, it then blocks your tunnel and you can't get your next pieces of materials, equipment, soil you're trying to move out, people you're trying to move in through. And so logistics pathways in underground construction is, is incredibly more difficult than being on a, on a high level uh, above ground job, I could say. 
Uh, and I know there's lots of different geology in different places in London, but are there physical limits to building in, you know, different types of soil, rock, everything? Yeah, I I have to say I really pondered that a lot and how I was going to... You're, you're asking me a question that is relying on my opinion as much as it is my uh, professional expertise, but I have been in construction for 25 years, so I suppose this is a considered opinion. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. There's no physical limits. What will be affected is the cost and the speed. One of my very first projects, which is a beloved project of mine, was a brand new space launch complex at Cape Canaveral, Florida, and I loved it. I loved it. It was a state-of-the-art facility. It was built to launch the largest rocket that had ever been launched anywhere in the world to that day. It was a Titan IV rocket, and it was a launch of the first of the Mars observers. And the size and the, the weight of the Mars observer and the size and the weight of the Titan IV meant that we had a space launch complex that was like none other that had ever, ever been built. We had bigger, deeper flame trenches than had ever been built anywhere in the world. We had uh, taller cryogenic tanking systems. We had this astonishing amount of work to do both underground and above ground for that job. And, you know, at the time, looking at it, it was a bit, you know, wow, this, this has never been done anywhere in the world. How are we going to do this? Um, and and we did. But the, the thing I suppose, and I work at, sometimes at Canary Wharf, uh, and I'm looking down regularly at these uh, basements that are just gobsmacking in depth and size and piles that are going. I, I, can, I have no idea how deep they're going, but they're about ready to hold up a 50-story building or 70-story building, or I don't know how many stories is the shard. Huge underground structures that I think five or ten years ago would possibly have been seen as impossible, but with at, at a slow and considered speed, with the right cost, it, it just it seems no. I said I'm not so sure. I think there's a limit. Maybe you know if it was a hundred years ago, you know, would have said yeah. Well, no, the deepest you could ever put a uh, big substructure would be you know as as deep as you go underneath the Eiffel Tower, of course. And then no, oh, no, and then along comes, along comes, along comes, along comes. So we don't get that many earthquakes. I have felt one here once, but what happens in London? Or I guess, you know, do things change underground enough to impact stations or the tunnels, I guess, when they're built? Yep. No, that's a great question. So just to say, I, I worked in I worked in San Francisco for a while. In fact, I was there when the big 89 earthquake hit. And also I worked in Seattle for a while where we were building. If you've ever, have you, I don't know if you've been to Seattle, there's a monorail there that's there. Well, the job was going to be, just before the city canceled the funding on it, a 14-mile-long monorail that was going to go all along through the city with lots of small stops through the city, very beautiful and iconic it was going to be. Uh, but we went out there to do all the preliminary engineering, all the geotechnical. I'm going to talk about geotechnical investigations in a minute, but all of the decision making around it. And of course, it's an extremely seismic area, as is California. So you do have specialists that study how do you do underground and above ground structures in earthquake zones and seismically sensitive uh, places. And funny enough, it all centers around how you allow a structure to move, whether it's underground. So big um you see in san francisco in particular on 
on windy days and on other times and certainly during earthquakes, you can't believe how much sway happens in those tall skyscrapers on purpose because it's actually in that flexibility and in that swaying is, is the building saved, if I, if I can say, rather than a, a rigid building that would snap. So in, in underground uh, and in areas like London, it, it's, it's the same in that uh, all structures move and all structures move uh, whether they're above ground or underground. And it's the careful placement of uh, expansion joints, they're called, um, and movement joints. Uh, both above and below ground. Um, and so we have in our tunnel segments, we have uh, throughout the London Underground and uh, as well, the the knowledge and the ability for it to move, and in particular to move with seasons. Uh, and again, the moving with seasons has to do with the moving of uh, in temperature. You may know on roads and bridges, there's always expansion joints there. Sometimes they look like finger, fingers that, that slide back and forth. Other times it's a rubber, it's a rubberized band. Uh, in in underground construction, it's, it'll be the rubberized band because you don't want to have leakage through it. Uh, so it's a purposefully placed movement joint uh, that prevents cracking when the ground is trying to push and pull your structure underground. You only you have movement in millimeters, so it's not noticeable. But definitely you need to design for it and you need to build for that so yeah it's a great question so what can we learn from such a huge project like crossrail the two things i think that we that we learned more than ever in in my mind is before we started our construction on crossrail underground construction we we did uh, two things to and to an extent that i've never ever done them before so the first is we put these tiny little instruments mostly they look like a little cat eye they're, they're no bigger than the palm of they're smaller than the palm of your hand actually but tens of thousands of these instruments everywhere throughout london on every single building on every single road every single rail viaduct structure anywhere that might have been in our what i call trough in the trough of influence so that's if you picture the uh, the bottom of the tunnel and then you picture the lines that kind of gently rise up to the surface and spread out anything in our trough we put in these tens of thousands of instruments yeah we then set up electronic monitoring of them with these little if you typed it into Google, automatic total station, that would be automatic total station, that would tell you, you would come up with some pictures of them, but basically they look like a little, um, they're bigger than a camera, but anyway, they're not too far off what you would think of as a, as a camera, uh, and they have a laser eye on them, and they're on a little wheelie base, and they spin around, and they look at each of these prisms, look at that one, spin around, laser light looks at that one, spin around, laser light looks at that one. And, and it's looking at that prism and it's registering a number and then it's sending in a wireless way, a wireless communication back to a central database that compares that number to the last time it read the number. If, if there's any movement on that, even a millimeter, half a millimeter, uh, that is calculated and instantly registered and, and instantly set out. So we've got all these devices that are out there. We've got all these automatic total stations. We did it a year in advance so we could see the whole fluctuation of the seasons so that we weren't panicking over something that was just a natural season fluctuation. Figured out what the baseline is for each one of these buildings and pre-agreed some trigger levels. Okay, if that building moves three millimeters or five millimeters or if it starts to tip from one side to the other or tips diagonally, 
you can you could watch that. And then we got this information every single day. My team did, and no good giving people like me, um, you know, a, an Excel spreadsheet with six million numbers on it. What the clever folks did was to say, all right, how can this be instantly useful? to our site teams, and obviously what they did was to come up with very tricky, bespoke switching of all of that data into topographic maps yeah, and uh, colorful maps where you can see movement from the, from the last readings or the last week's readings or the last month's readings quite quickly and easily, and you can say, okay, that building is starting to tip. So what do you do then? And that's my next thing is, oh, and we looked at the data every single day, have a a meeting nine o'clock in the morning, every single morning without fail. And so what do you do then if you start to see a building tipping? Well, the other thing that we did was do something called compensation grouting. And and the way you would, if you wanted to look something up on that, you would look up grout shafts and you would look up something called a a TAM, T-A-M, which is a shortened acronym for tuba meshette. Uh, and what those are is, so you sink a shaft down in the ground uh, vertically, vertical shaft down about 20 meters down, and then out of the base of that, you, you push out an array of horizontal tubes, and all of those tubes have holes in them, and so when you start to see a building start to tip, you figure out what tube mechette is underneath that building, and you start pumping grout, which is like toothpaste, really, heavier and uh, environmentally friendly and you start pumping in it, it starts coming out the holes there underneath that corner of that building or that side of the building that you're worried about, and you pump it and you pump it and you pump it and you're pumping liters and liters and liters and liters, tens of liters, hundreds of liters, until you start to raise the ground back up and you start to raise that raise that building back up or that uh, highway viaduct or uh, highway overpass or whatever it is that you're worried about. So, oh my gosh, did we need compensation grouting here in London? Sometimes you make a decision, uh, and and I did, to preheat. So if you know you're tunneling through an area and you know you've got sand lenses or ground fault conditions that you're worried about or slushy, watery ground, you've got a building directly overhead, you might say, listen, I think we're going to come down. When we go through there, we're going to come down. We're going to settle the ground by five millimeters. Let's get in there ahead and preheave by three millimeters, and then let's watch it. So you go in, you lift up the entire surface of the earth there uh, in that zone, and then you watch as you're tunneling through it, generally watching it come back down, see if you need to, to go in and, and heave again. So anyway, those are that's a, some of the trickiest stuff that I've done over the last couple of years. Um, I just want to say, you know, when you see them and when you go out and you see all these grout, we did 25 different of these grout shafts and thousands of this tube in the sheds and, as I said, tens of thousands of the instruments. Um, how do you know about the ground? And just real quick, and when you come along something as a surprise. Uh, yes. So, uh, first of all, the ground uh, that I talked about, you know what ground strata you've got by doing what's called core samples. Cores, uh, generally, they're, if you stuck out all of your fingers and you're looking, they're bigger than your palm, but but maybe not as big as all your fingers out in that in that area there. And you're sending down an empty casing all the way down as deep as you think you need to go for your whatever it is that you're building and usually beyond. And then you, you gently pull it up so it's got all of that material in it and then you slide it out onto the table. We're able to look at it. That would say, ah, okay, so at this depth we've got made ground. At this depth, that, see all that? That's all clearly sand. It sands up. Oh, here's the depth that we start to get to clay. 
So you can do that in different locations, and that's how you tell what soil you're going to be in. The argument ahead of construction is how many different core samples do we need to do? Each one costs money and is a bit of disruption for the people that are around. And, you know, usually you get a rig and do you want to put it in the middle of the road or middle of a footpath? Well, we do need information there. All right, can we skip every other one to cut down on costs? Well, all right, what does that mean about our clarity of what's underground and what assumptions we can make? So there's that. On... uh, Roman ruins and the like. Um, yeah, funny. Sometimes you know you're finding them and sometimes you don't. There was a suspected Black Plague uh, cemetery near my team. And sure enough, we found 23 bodies. Uh, they died in the 1460s and they died of the Black Plague. Uh, so we had uh, overwatch by archaeologists. And then as soon as we found the first bones, they were all pre, pre-organized to jump down in the hole and, and to start with their questions to get these 23 bodies out. Um, so yeah, so, uh, that was, we knew we were going to find something, didn't know exactly what or exactly what depth, but there, there they were. Um, my sister station up the, up the way is Liverpool street. They did not realize they found 3000 bodies at 3,800. I think it is or something like that. 3,600. Um, they were astonished. Again, they were expecting some bodies, but they had no idea and no plan that they were going to have that many. Their project is adjacent to what was the old Bethlehem Mental Hospital. Bedlam is what is where the word came from. Uh, so that's what do you do when you find something interesting? You call an archaeologist and they they get get move it out of your way and then you keep going. Uh, in tunnel boring machines, you never find anything interesting uh, because you're too deep and uh, everything from bones and utilities and everything is is up closer to the surface. And yes, on the question of, I loved your last question, will you miss it when you're done? Yes. And especially a project like Crossroad, which is so full of great spirit and charisma. And everybody feels like we're doing something really meaningful and purposeful. And, you know, so it makes a very, uh, so it's hard. It's really challenging. But it's for, you know, we're, it's like we do it for love. Uh, and so that makes a really, Really uh, funny team dynamics, and um, so yeah, yeah, the answer is. But I'll be, you know, I'll be back. I'll be elbowing my way to the front of the uh, the line when the when the system opens. Yeah, when the Elizabeth line opens. And that's it. Thanks to both Carrie Patel and Linda Miller for their time. There's some bumper show notes this week with links to the BBC Two documentary on Crossrail and some other videos, especially about the archaeology work done as a result of Crossrail. The third book in the Recoletta series, The Song of the Dead, is out in May, so you have a couple months to catch up if you haven't read the first two already. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. See you next month.